this year has been the year of the coronavirus and what's next? Um, the murder hornets. Those that are longtime listeners may remember that when I lived in Texas, I had a beehive. So I guess now I could wear my COVID-19 mask and just put my beekeeper suit on over it. As a beekeeper, it's more you have to be worrying about the livelihood of your bees, right? Isn't that what I understand? They're supposed to kill the honeybee or something like that? Decapitates them in their hives. I mean, that's like a crime of passion. Like they're meaning to do it. It's going to turn into a really great Netflix documentary one of these days. (laughs) The making of a murder hornet. Welcome to Touchpoint, a podcast dedicated to discussions on digital marketing and patient engagement strategies for hospitals, health systems, and physician practices. In this podcast, we'll dive deep into digital tools, solutions, and strategies that are impacting our industry today. We hope to share a lot of great information with you and have fun along the way. Thanks for joining us. Now, here are your hosts. Welcome to episode 171 of Touchpoint. I'm Reed Smith. That is Chris Boyer. Hey, Reed. We are currently murder hornet free. Up here as well in in Minnesota, but you never know. That's spreading over the country. Uh, I don't know how fast it is, but it's springtime now, so we'll start to see more of them, I suppose. Yep. Just stay inside and flattens the curve. So thank you for tuning in. Thanks for telling a friend. Thanks for being a loyal patron of the show. Uh, Touchpoint.health is the website. That's where you can check out a little more about the episode that you're listening to, along with all the other shows, show hosts, and other great resources on the Touchpoint Media Network. Uh, While you're there, sign up for the TPS report. That's our weekly email that comes out with all kinds of great aggregated uh, news stories from around the industry. It's quick read every Monday morning, so you can do that there. Let's take a brief break, and we will be uh, right back with the show. Chris, in today's digital age, your online reputation, as we all know, is crucial. With customers relying on online reviews, your first impression is also compared directly with your competitors. Sure is. And Reed, consider this. 86% of patients today read online reviews and 73% demand that that healthcare provider has a minimum four-star rating. Demand. They demand it. Yeah, they do. Well, to stand out, choose reputation to help amplify your brand and to build trust. Be the provider of choice in your area, understand patient sentiment, get actionable insights, and even foster patient loyalty. And look, here's the easy way you could do that. All you need to do is go visit reputation.com slash touchpoint. That's reputation.com slash touchpoint, where you can download their healthcare online reputation management guide and build a reputation that performs for you. So as of this recording, read, I have noticed a steady stream of information that might be categorized as misinformation that's spreading online about various different things related to health, particularly around this pandemic. I mean, have you seen this as well in your different social feeds? Yeah, for sure. There's a steady diet, if you will, of uh, really everything, uh, and everything seems to be related to uh, the pandemic itself. A huge uptick in the amount of UV scanning 
boxes that you put your phone in. It's supposed to like kill the germs on your phone, stuff like that. So I think everybody is trying to take advantage of or maximize the opportunity of the time in which we are. And I know a couple of episodes ago, we talked about misinformation online and how technology is starting to rise to it. And in that in that episode, we actually talked about the role of hospitals and health systems as being sort of the convener of the most authoritative and accurate information. And part of that, read is because what we're trying to do as health systems, we're trying to drive people to make informed choices about what to do about their care, where to go for information, you know, the best way to get care, et cetera. We're certainly not on the back side of this necessarily, but from an informational standpoint, maybe we're, we're kind of getting on the back side of this a little bit. And so it's a little more of the kind of what now conversation or our people are getting antsy with trying to get back to life, you know, so it's like, well, when can we do this and when can we do that? And when can we start going to church again or going to the beach or gathering with friends and family? And yeah, so I, again, people are trying to kind of suss through what they're finding and seeing and where those credible sources, you know, are coming from. And I think ultimately, really, what we're trying to get at here in today's episode is we're going to talk about the way us as, as organizations, we share information. The real reason why we're doing it is we're helping to give them guidance. We're, we're really trying to help direct them to get the right care at the right time. And that goes back to this concept that we we brought up, I don't know, maybe about a year ago, maybe even more about clinical decision support and, and using digital as a way to drive the right decisions. You remember that episode? When was that? How long ago was that? That was back in 2018, Reed, September of 2018, a year and a half ago. Who would have known 18 months ago we would be sitting here right now? One of the key ways that we as hospitals and health systems can keep on top of guiding people to the right care is continuing to understand what our customers want and how they trust us so we can actually start to communicate them in the right way, which kind of leads us to one of the first things we're going to cover today, which is your organization just recently did an online survey about coronavirus. We've obviously over the last, well, couple of months now, really, uh, have been working with organizations. And again, just as a little bit of background, we only work with hospitals and healthcare systems and other health providers. And so through that, obviously, we work with a lot of hospitals around the country that are dealing with these types of issues with uh, relative to COVID-19 and the coronavirus. And so that could be when they were initially kind of in that crisis standpoint and and suspending elective surgeries and you know non non essential uh, services and those types of things, possibly furloughing employees, um, you know dealing dealing with the local community and trying to help help guide people. And so, one thing we did as an organization is decided to uh, poll uh, adults uh, across the country and really kind of get their their feedback on how they're feeling and when they think they might would come back to a hospital. You know, because again. A lot of people are starting to plan towards and have sensed, you know, reopen some elective type procedures and things like that. So trying to understand, well, what's the, what's the sentiment and kind of where are people's, you know, where's people's mindset as it relates to all of this? I found it to be a really interesting study. And what's interesting, too, is that you it was kind of broken down into four key themes. One of the themes was really around the impact on Americans and people in America. We've been covering a lot of stats about how people are responding to this virus and how it impacts healthcare. It's not only the impact on healthcare, but it's also their financial considerations are kind of leading to what their new consumer mindset is, right? 
It absolutely is. And so again, if, you, if you're interested in the survey, certainly we'll have a link to it in the show notes. You're welcome to go download it. Uh, if it's easier, feel free to shoot me a note or, or find me on Twitter or something like that. I'm happy to, happy to email it to you. But we asked people, you know, what was the most important issue facing the country? And there was a laundry list of options they could choose from. And, and this was done April the 16th through the 20th. So here fairly recently, survey of, of 1,000 uh, adults. Again, demographics are in the study if you'd like to kind of dig into that. But 54% of those surveyed believe the coronavirus is the most important issue facing the country. And if you kind of couple that with a few things like their job and health care and some of those types of things, which I'm sure were fueled by this, it, it's almost everybody at that juncture, something in the 80s. That is still front and top of mind for folks. Let's face it, it's not going away. It's still out there. And as, as we kind of navigate through whatever the new normal will be in the future, we're going to continually hear this over and over again, right? I think, what, 78% of people were worried that someone in their uh, family w- might catch it? Yeah, so what was it, 78% or something like that? People are concerned uh, that someone in their, their immediate family might catch the coronavirus. On the flip side of that, only 28% of the people that we talk to personally have or have known someone who's been affected. So again, most everybody's concerned, but very few people have actually had it. 45%, you know, someone either personally or someone in their household have had a change to their employment status due to coronavirus, of which those of those 45%, 26% of those have lost their health insurance. So again, I think these are all precursors to the expectation. You know, I was talking to a client the end of last week, and they said that, you know, the two biggest concerns when polling their patients, and they're in a huge market, was one, how safe is it, right, to come back? And two, was the person's ability to pay. Like those are the two big kind of hurdles as they were talking to patients, trying to reschedule things that had been had been previously canceled. That's a significant thing. 26% of the people that have had their employment status changed lost their health insurance. And one of the other substats out of here, which shows that this is impacting people all across the socioeconomic spectrum, 10% of those people with private health insurance say they have lost their health insurance as well. That financial impact is going to affect how people are making decisions about where to seek out care now and you know into the future because a lot of people avert going to seek out care proactively because they can't afford it. So to pivot just a little bit, we've got a little bit of good news in the sense that trust in providers has risen. Nurses, doctors, hospitals specifically is how it was broken out uh, individually within the survey. People already had a favorable opinion of nurses, of doctors, of hospitals, but it's risen even through this. You know, this is these are the trusted voices, and so when you start looking at favorability rankings, and again, just just glancing at the at the findings here, pretty far down the list was local and national news. The favorability is still residing within these subject matter experts. I think the important point of this is hospitals are the one out of those three. They're the ones that can convene all three of those. The hospital can be the convener. Nurses are going to have a hard time pulling hospitals and doctors together, right? Or doctors are going to have a hard time pulling nurses and hospitals together. But hospitals have the opportunity to really kind of shape and bring these groups together and then provide this credibility to the audiences. 
from what your company's study found out, there's a 73% increase in trust in nurses, 71% increase in trust of doctors, and 68% for hospitals. I mean, this is, I mean, should we just round all of this up to really 100%? Because quite honestly, if we're talking about healthcare and we're talking about where are the right places to get decisions, hospitals, nurses, doctors, they all pretty much have a lock on shifting the way people can start to consume care and how they should start to uh, seek out care and what type of care they can seek out. We can't understate that enough, you know, because when we ask the question specifically, if you, the person taking the survey, has, has the trust in these individuals increased since coronavirus, basically three out of four people said, yes, yes, my, the, the trust that I have in these people ha- has gone up. That's pretty wild, knowing that it was already high. That's the opportunity for us to be able to kind of take the reins. And when I say us, I don't mean me specifically, but those of us working in healthcare, especially in the clinical roles that you know people are looking to for insights. The study went on and went a little bit deeper because it really started to talk about that that whole thing about being afraid of the virus, afraid of contracting the disease, despite the fact that, you know, only a quarter of the people actually know someone that has the virus. There are other things that are impacting this trust factor. There's significant obstacles for patients, preventing them from going back to seek out care, right? So let's talk about that a little bit. Just as a level set, uh, we asked uh, individuals to rate their feeling of safety on a scale of one to 10. 10, I'm totally safe, totally confident, you know, that kind of thing. Half the people we talked to, 51% of the people that we talked to rated uh, themselves as a five or lower. So this idea of safety, how safe do you feel going back to a healthcare facility is not very high currently. If you stratify that out and just look at women, it's even lower. Women are a 4.8 on a scale of one to 10. If what holds true, what we've historically talked about, about you know women making all the healthcare decisions, et cetera, et cetera, and I don't want to get into that argument necessarily, but it's, it's even lower for that particular target group. Even when we looked at, yeah, but what if it's a healthcare household? You or a family member work in healthcare. How safe do you feel? 5.4. So really no real movement, even amongst those that work in healthcare that we talk to. When you start asking people what would make you feel more safe, it's, well, less cases. Of course. <laughs> I think that's a, a logical one, certainly. Um, anything jump out to you out of that list of what, what would make people feel safe? Right next to it is isolation of infectious diseases in separate facilities. So they're thinking about the facility level now. They're saying, oh, I may not want to go to a facility that has seen exposure to the coronavirus. The next one right below that, which is also interesting, it says your doctor is saying it's safe. The doctor saying it's safe is actually has a high impact on how they're making decisions about safety. That's a significant opportunity for organizations that are looking to maybe start to ease people's fears about coming back in. Another one that jumps out to me is the new sterilization and cleanliness procedures. One thing that we're continuing to see is it's not enough to just tell people, like you're going to have to show them. We're going to have to do a little show and tell with some videos and different things like that, whether it's on social or otherwise, of showing what new sterilization and cleanliness procedures look like. 
If we kind of move on through the survey, the next big section is around electives. Because again, a lot of this was based on when are you going to come back? The first question was, when do you think life will return to normal? Not, not in healthcare, but just when do you think life will return to normal? There's no consensus. 6% said never, and they may be the ones that are correct. But when you look at three months or less, three to six, six to 12, or one year plus, they're almost in quadrants. It's almost evenly dispersed among those other four. Even more so, your organization kind of broke it out by the different regions and, you know, dare I say, the hotspots, right? So we know that there's hotspots on both coasts. New York, um, Louisiana is also a hotspot. Florida is a hotspot. And then the West Coast. But regardless of where you're at, if you're in a hotspot or in the middle of the country, the return to normal time frame is pretty much the same across every region of the United States. We don't know when it's all going to get back to normal, which is interesting. When people return to healthcare facilities, we asked them, like, how quickly would they come back? Just to schedule a routine doctor's visit, people are much more likely to come back quicker than going to a hospital for an elective procedure. If you look at scheduling an elective procedure in a hospital versus scheduling an elective procedure in a non-hospital medical facility like an outpatient medical center, there's no difference between a hospital and an outpatient center. So again, go back to a doctor's office quicker, but when we're talking about hospital or basically an outpatient center, there's really no difference. And what's interesting is we didn't treat COVID in outpatient medical facilities. Another point here is that men are more likely to schedule an elective procedure in a hospital quicker than women. Within 30 days, men are a third of the men you, you surveyed said they would schedule that elective procedure. Now, of course, seniors and women who are probably more cautious and more, you know, careful about their care. And for them, almost 45% of women said they're going to schedule it seven months or longer out. They're going to wait that long to defer care. And from a senior perspective, half of the people that you polled as well are going to, if they can, wait that seven months or longer. Of course, those over 65 realize that, you know, that some of the care is not their elective care can't wait that long. So 40% of them are saying also within the next two to six months, but still we have to keep in mind the, 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 the people out there that are actually interested in resuming their care are maybe not eager right now to get back in. The importance of us understanding how to use the communications that we do, we got to keep in account where they're at in the whole return to normal journey, so to speak. There's another big part of what we traditionally have seen as being a trusted source that kind of can help shape the conversation for hospitals and health systems that is also being impacted. We'll come back and we'll talk about how people are trusting media and news. And we'll do that right after this brief word. Coming soon from Greystone, Bowstring, and Touchpoint Media, live from HCIC, a new podcast that brings you front row access to the latest innovative strategies that are shaping tomorrow's healthcare industry. In this 12-part series, as recorded live at the Healthcare Internet Conference, we'll hear from industry experts such as Paul Madsen of the Cleveland Clinic, Kathy Smith of Roper St. Francis Healthcare, David Feinberg from Mount Sinai Health System, Rose Glenn from Michigan Medicine, and many others. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcasting platform. This podcast series is brought to you by Greystone.net, Bowstring, and Touchpoint Media.
All right, so before the break, we talked a little bit about what consumers were thinking, feeling when they're likely to return. Again, link in the show notes or just send me a note and I'll be happy to send you that study uh, in full. Uh, so now let's turn our attention a little bit to somebody we actually saw on the list, media. And so Cision, for those that might be familiar, Cision has the 2020 Global State of the Media Report that has just come out. You can download it from their website. And it they has uh, several different key takeaways, COVID-19's impact on the media, the distrust in the media, slash trust in the media, the relationship between bias and reporters, technology's impact, press releases, pitches, et cetera. So it's a, it's a pretty lengthy study and has some uh, really good information in there. One of the reasons why we want to talk about it, too, is that in most hospitals and health systems, they've traditionally seen media as like a trusted source in which do you want to position your, your medical staff into the media outlets because it's more of a trusted source, right? That whole concept of a third-party authority that gives you sort of more of that gravitas, that credence of being more trusted. Well, guess what? No big surprise. In 2020, even before the coronavirus, the media outlets have been seeing a slowly erosion of trust in them. Let's dig into this a little bit, Reed, and pull out some interesting information here. One of the questions they ask or they talk about in here is, what do you believe is the biggest challenge for journalism uh, over the last 12 months? There's some interesting things in there. One of them, for example, staffing and resources. Does that mean like we don't have a healthcare reporter at the paper anymore and that kind of thing? Is that what we're talking about there? Yeah, I think most hospitals have hired away those healthcare reporters to work in their communications teams, right? But that's an ongoing thing, right? I mean, staffing and resources, I've been hearing this for the last 10 years. It's kind of degrading in the industry itself, right? You know, another one on the list, which I thought was kind of fascinating and almost has a little bit of a parallel to some conversations we've had on the hospital side of the equation, are social networks and influencers bypassing traditional media. That's interesting to me because didn't we, we've talked about that from a hospital standpoint in the sense of like, well, it used to be if we wanted you to know something, we told you about it. And now with the advent of social networks and people being able to report anything at any time, we've kind of lost control of the message or the ability to control the message. You know, again, good, bad, or indifferent. I'm not, I'm not trying to argue that side of it. So I thought this was interesting that it was like, you know, kind of a common thing between the brand and journalist was the fact that social networks and influencers uh, have kind of circumvented the process. Yeah, totally circumvented the process. And to the point now where I see things that are posted all the time from quote unquote reputable sources. But if you dig into it, you're not even sure where that source is because there's so many different places now online where you could find any kind of information that matches your own point of view and put it out on social media as authoritative. The challenge is, is that we as social media consumers, we are starting to get overwhelmed by like, how, how much do we have to fact check or if my doctor friend posted this, shouldn't that be authoritative? Or if my friend who works in the healthcare industry posted this, shouldn't I consider that to be real? Even the, the social media sites themselves have started to really kind of get in to say, wait, we have to arbitrate this now. It can no longer be sort of that Wild West. Which leads to these next two points around the ongoing conversation on fake news is the third most biggest challenge. And then right below that is attack on freedom of the press. All of those things kind of combine together. Social networking, fake news, and attacks on freedom of the press are undermining the entire integrity of what used to be a very trusted resource for, for people to turn to to get real authentic information. 
because now you don't know where to turn. Perception is reality, and the perception is is that whatever the news outlet is, is biased one way or the other. And that was another concern that they listed. Media bias is a concern. Bias is part of being human, and it affects journalists just as much as the rest of us, which is true, but I don't know. Maybe it's revisionist history, but I just feel like it used to be more the news, right? Not, right. Comment, not commentary. Yeah, journalists versus pundits. There's that whole nuance there. I think that, that it just becomes a challenge for us as consumers and us as professionals trying to utilize these channels to actually kind of navigate the way through, again, with the premise of getting the right information to the right people at the right time. And in the case of healthcare, getting them to make the right choices about their care. They surveyed the journalists to ask them if the public has lost trust with the media. 59% of journalists believe the public has lost trust in the media over the last year. And the other 41% are lying. <laughs> <laughs> no, or they're disconnected or something. Yeah, I mean, it talks about the Edelman Trust Barometer, which I think a lot of folks are, are probably uh, familiar with. And this is where we typically see some of the healthcare folks rated pretty high. The 61% of the informed public, again, based on age, education, income, et cetera, trust the media, while only 47% of mass population. So the informed public, I think that's interesting. I feel like that's a hashtag. That is an interesting way to describe it, huh? It almost sounds a little biased, Reed, right? When you're calling them the informed public based on age, education, and income. Now we get it that there are people that are in a certain age bracket with a certain education level and a certain income level that meets a demographic, but then you lump everybody else down at the 47% of mass population. No wonder people start to think that there is a bias. The bias maybe even to this Edelman trust barometer, by the way, to describe it. I'm going to start using that, I think. like Anytime <laughs> somebody disagrees with me, I'm going to be like, well, the informed public doesn't. <laughs> they're on my side. The, the people that are educated, that have in, you know good income, they're all aligned with me. We informed public, unlike you, mass population. Yeah, <laughs> that exactly. just seems so weird. So they also say an entirely separate but related issue is misinformation, both intentional and unintentional. And they say here that when disreputable journalists and journalistic outlets publish misinformation purposefully to get clicks or views, it damages the ecosystem and the trust. But they also indicate that journalists make honest mistakes because they're in a rush to post so much content, they have to keep up with it. They say 10 plus stories a week is kind of the average quota a journalist has to publish a week. No wonder that sometimes they publish misinformation accidentally. That's really an interesting point that I have not thought a whole lot about. People do make mistakes. I think it's when you see selectively a part of an interview run or a soundbite or something, right? That leads you to think one thing and they do come back and apologize, but just kind of offhand, like on Twitter, like, Hey, our bad, you know, kind of a thing. Right. But the damage is done. So it makes it harder to then give any grace to people that make honest mistakes. It's hard to delineate, is that an honest mistake or are they purposely doing it? Maybe a little on the nose, but anyway, that's tough. And, and I do think probably the cadence of social media has accelerated the cadence of journalism and has probably exacerbated the amount of mistakes people make, certainly. It made me make more mistakes. I also make mistakes when I post on social media sometimes and go back. And But I, I guess mine are lower stakes because I'm not a journalist. I'm just a podcaster. <laughs> 
there's a lot more to this study, actually, and we encourage you to go download it because it talks into, because for those of you who are actually working with media, it gives tips on how to position your, your pitches a little bit better, how to get your story heard a little bit more. Quite frankly, we're all struggling with media as a trusted source to help make decisions. But I think it's time in our show read where we kind of pivot now to the interview. Someone that we know over at Doc ASAP, uh, Jordan Pisarsik, he and I had the chance to sit down and talk about how he's worked with organizations to use digital tools to help navigate and guide patients to the right care, developing content, approaches to things like online appointment scheduling, using all of the digital tools within your, your toolkit to really guide that path for patients that are looking for the journey, particularly now when they're starting to think about when it's best to come back in. So why don't we do that right after this break? Welcome back to the Ask the Expert section of the podcast. And today I am talking with a good friend, Jordan. You and I have uh, known each other for, I guess now, a couple of years. And we actually kind of worked together at the previous health system I was at. Can you introduce yourself to our audience and let them know a little bit about yourself and your background? Sure, Chris. And thanks for, for having me on the show. Uh, my name is Jordan Pasarsik. I am the Vice President of Growth and Customer Engagement at DocASAP. Uh, which is a patient access, engagement, and online scheduling platform for uh, healthcare providers and health plans as well. I've been at DocASAP for uh, seven years, and I've been in healthcare for over a decade. Uh, originally started in the pharmaceutical industry, pharmaceutical marketing, and now I oversee growth, which includes uh, marketing and lead gen at the company, uh, as well as customer engagement. So managing our relationships with our uh, health system and provider group customers, as well as our health plan and payer customers around the country, uh, which is how Chris and I know each other uh, um, from, from his work at, at a health system. And at that time, we were talking about the very topic that we're going to talk about now, only now it's a little bit more heightened given what's going on and with this public health crisis that we're kind of under. The big thing here is way back when we were, when I was working with you, the one thing that, that I came to realize is there is a fair amount of confusion that a lot of people, when they're trying to navigate a health system, they are confronted with that because, you know, the call centers are kind of a little bit hard to navigate and maybe they're not really sure where they need to go. And and you and I both had like really deep conversations about what's the best way to kind of guide people or help people get to the right provider in the right care setting at the right time. So tell me a little bit about your perspective, Jordan. I think navigating the healthcare system in the U.S. in particular uh, has always been a challenge. I think patients are looking for guidance on how to find the right provider for what they need, making sure that that provider is also in their health plan uh, so that they're covered for their services, and further just understanding uh, the complexities of dealing particularly with chronic care conditions where they have to see multiple providers, perhaps across multiple institutions, and aren't often given the guidance needed to navigate those situations. So even if they're you know, a new patient coming in for a service for the first time, uh, they may not know where to start. But even if they're an established patient that's navigating chronic care, again, knowing what the next best action is has always been a challenge in the healthcare system. And a lot of patients are confused, especially with more of the abandonment of primary care doctors, or at least dedicated primary care doctors. You're seeing much more, I think, a trend toward patients 
not really knowing the best steps to take for their care. And I think the current COVID-19 situation has really accentuated that. And we're seeing uh, really the challenges that come when, when patients don't know where to go. They're confused about what certain things might mean for their health and where to go to seek support. And so I think that element of guidance is even more prescient at this moment. It really is. And I think part of it is, you know, when it, when they first started to hear about, you know, the various different symptoms and the guidance that health systems are at, it was kind of ever evolving. Let's be fair about that, right? The first couple of weeks of this, it wasn't really sure where to go, where can you get testing? And there were some organizations that had testing that suddenly they don't anymore. And then, you know, as the weeks have kind of progressed, we saw introduction of now telemedicine. Sometimes that's new to certain communities. They started to introduce these new different ways that you can actually consume care. And that made it just even more confusing. There are some people out there that are very much, they want to self-navigate their care. They actually embrace some of these digital tools. Well, there's others that just don't even know a clue where to start. Tell me a little bit about how you've helped some of your clients maybe navigate. Let's start with telemedicine. So we've certainly seen a pretty dramatic uptick in uh, health systems really prioritizing their digital services, and in particular, telemedicine visits. We're seeing that that is a, a clear response to the current pandemic um, in the sense that it both allows providers to screen patients outside of the office and then direct them toward the most appropriate care. And in some cases also manage a bit of the worried well uh, at home. And a lot of people are that worried well today. So we've certainly seen that health systems were at different stages of the journey with respect to uh, being able to manage televisits. Some had a an, you know, system that was up and running. Uh, others had been thinking about it and this sort of accelerated you know, decisions along those lines, but certainly heard a lot from our customers in the first few weeks of uh, this crisis that, that they were ramping up what they were able to support from a telemedicine capability. We decided to jump into that head first and uh, think about ways to allow patients to schedule not just um, in-person appointments, which increasingly are being reserved for urgent situations uh, with a lot of non-urgent appointments being canceled um, or rescheduled, but also that that was an opportunity to potentially route some of those patients who are sick, who do need care uh, for other things outside of COVID-19 to telemedicine visits. And so we proactively uh, enabled capabilities for patients to, first of all, find out and, and again, receive that guidance on, is telemedicine an option for you? And then actually being able to book an appointment for a telemedicine visit or even connect with a provider right then, right? Be directed immediately to uh, a telemedicine service that uh, the healthcare provider or the health system has up and running already. Um, now, on top of that, we do also partner with uh, other groups where patients are going to find care, to find providers when they're sick. So sometimes that's a Google search or they're going to social media or they're going to their health plans. They're going to the member you know, portals of Aetna or United or, or Anthem, and they're saying, how can I find care for whatever it is that I need? And again, now acutely, they're thinking, how do I manage uh, either my COVID-19 you know, potential case that I have, or how do I manage other conditions given that you know, my health systems, my providers are totally overloaded dealing with other patients that have COVID-19. 
what we thought about is how can we leverage those channels that exist today through which we'd normally help patients book in-person visits, but now actually help them book televisits instead. You know, I think what you're pointing out, Jordan, is that you know it is a complex, healthcare is complex, right? And since the pandemic broke, there's still a fair amount of people that are out there that are actively managing their own care. It's like all those things didn't just stop. Just because hospitals stopped elective surgery doesn't mean patients stopped having those symptoms, right? right? Or, or those care, maybe these health systems launch these new telemedicine initiatives, but not many patients know that, you know, that maybe their, their um, orthopedic surgeon now offers televisits, teleconsults where they never did before. And so it's really kind of guiding them through that. And it also, the other thing that you pointed out through what you're, that, ex- that example that you gave is there's many other places now where people are actually interacting with our health system in different ways, right? They're not just coming to our websites. I, I wish that our website was the authoritative source, but there's places like Google and Facebook and even insurance provider websites where sometimes they start their care and that could very much um, impact the way they actually get the right care. And I think it's very important. Don't you agree that health systems need to be able to kind of be mindful of that, that larger complex ecosystem that we're dealing with now online? Absolutely agree. Um, I, I think there's been a recognition uh, of the, the the use that digital health services has in in again guiding patients to the right point of care, and particularly thinking about patient access. How how are patients accessing care, and that has to do partially with how do you you know get patients to be seen by the right provider, which I think is a very complex and challenging question to solve right now, because I think, you know, again, our our entire health system to some extent has been, uh, you know, upturned to a degree. But to your point, patients are looking through, are looking from so many different channels to find the best avenue for, for care. And they're not just relying on one single source of truth for where to go. And I think we were seeing an increase in, in health plan uh, activity before, where um, you know, as health plans got more savvy in terms of their their digital experiences and their uh, communication with their members um, over the years, we were seeing a lot more uh, patients in the community using those tools to find the right care. Because again, wanting to make sure that the providers that they see are in network and that it's in line with their overall care plan. Interestingly, health plans have almost become, as patients go to multiple different health systems and providers health plans have actually become an interesting source of truth that kind of ties their entire care plan together in a way too. But now I think you see even more of that because patients are confused about how to deal with the COVID-19 situation. They're not sure what's covered. Um, There was a little bit of confusion a couple of weeks ago about whether uh, COVID-19 treatment was covered or tests were covered or copays were covered or the whole thing was covered. That also is leading more people to look to their health plans for some guidance on what to do and making sure that they don't end up you know, spending thousands of dollars out of pocket for something, um, which is just going to compound an already uh, tense situation. Those inbound channels are also very important to think about. In addition to how do you, for lack of a better word, triage the patient appropriately in their care journey, both for COVID-19, as well as, to your point, 
non-COVID-19 situations that are still affecting people today and, and where they still need to get their health managed. You know, you used a loaded term there, triage, which a lot of us in the health systems, when we're listening to that, we think about that as like, well, that's something that has to be done by human intervention. But we're getting to the point now where these digital solutions can actually start to take more of that triage role, right? It, it can help direct people to the right places. Now, I'm one of those persons that I would prefer much rather to interact with a computer than I would with, you know, a human, no offense to the humans listening in, <laughs> because I feel like I'm more in control of where my, my care, you know, my care pathway, so to speak. Do you think that triage, digital triage, is that something that requires human intervention? Or are we at the point now where um, the solutions are there, where we can actually start to automate that, so to speak? Yeah, I think it's certainly moving in that direction. Um, I'm always hesitant to to say triage without the quotes around it, because I certainly think it's important that patients do, you know, communicate with with their providers and, and make sure that they know uh, what they should do, especially in urgent situations. But but I do think um, digital solutions are getting much more sophisticated at at least being able to guide patients on perhaps the right path to pursue um, as a starting point. So it doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, we yet have the sophisticated AI to say, yes, this is, you know, exactly what you should do. This is what you have, and I'm going to diagnose you. I think we're we're still far from that, and I think it's it's still important to, you know, to trust your your doctors and and things on that. But I, I do think, in terms of that initial guidance that we were referring to earlier, you are definitely seeing, you know, more capabilities of of solutions like DocASAP and others that can at least help guide patients on the right path to say, if you have such and such symptoms, or if you're looking for a particular type of care, here are some options for you uh, that you can consider. Um, and you can, you know, again, serve up options that make sense based on the current environment. Right now, that might be a televisit instead of an in-person visit. And that's where you can have a digital service that a patient can access at 11 o'clock at night when a practice wouldn't be able to help them address it to say, oh, I actually have this ability to, you know, virtually meet with my physician, either because I'm worried about COVID symptoms or because my knee is still hurting that I've been dealing with for months. Um, and I'm still trying to manage that. So that guidance piece is being recognized as a much more relevant and important consideration that digital health solutions can support doesn't take the place of a provider, but it certainly helps support patients on where to go for care. Yeah. And it kind of fulfills everything that we we say the promise of digital health will do, right? Which will take sort of the burden off of uh, the unnecessary burden off of the human side of our healthcare delivery network and actually start to free up and make that more robust. Jordan, as we talk about this, right, we, we a lot of times we may be thinking about this as being people that are new entrants into the care setting. But there's a certain amount of also shift that occurs to those people that already may have appointments with you. And I'll give you an example here is like um, when this suddenly started to break, one of the elective procedures that I, I had scheduled, I got a notification that that's been, you know, temporarily halted, right, or stopped. The healthcare system is tooling up to address the, the pandemic. Totally get that. Totally understand. But what's the next step for me then? I was never given that. How do you see the role of digital tools, digital health, helping to address those patients that already have appointments and giving them you know, guidance to where they go next? I think second to telemedicine facilitation 
Um, this was probably the the thing that we heard from uh, second most <laughs> from our from our customers as this was starting because it was very quickly recognized probably by health systems and, and care providers even before governments in some cases that they were going to need to shift priority very quickly in terms of how they were managing um, you know everyday health cases versus um, you know, situations related to COVID-19. And so um, you saw a lot of preemptive cancellations of elective surgeries, elective procedures, elective visits, quite frankly, anything non-urgent. Um, and then that became more stringent over time. So we had a lot of questions from the provider community about how to think about that. And one of the things that we realized is it's really important, to your point, to engage with your patients in a very clear and uh, informative way, give them options, make sure they understand what is happening to their appointment, why can't they see the provider, and also saying, what are their other options? Is it just that this is canceled indefinitely because you know we know that the world is in crisis right now? Well, I think certainly people would understand that, but it isn't necessarily the best outcome for a patient, particularly one who's sick or needs care. Giving them instead, an option within that communication to say, um, first of all, here's a little more information so you can understand what's happening um, and be able to update that dynamically as things change. So being able to configure what is that message that you're, that you're sending out there uh, very quickly to adapt to the situation. And then also giving people options to, again, perhaps pursue a telemedicine visit to say, you know, your visit has been converted to a televisit or your visit's been canceled, but you can book a televisit instead and consult with the provider uh, over the phone or over a video call. Um, and then I think there's also an important consideration here down the road of saying once life does return to normal, and we don't know when that's or a new normal, and we don't know exactly when that's going to be, um, patients are going to, you know, patients who have held off on a lot of more elective uh, procedures or elective treatments are going to want to come back in as quickly as possible in many cases. And so we also want to think about how do you then engage people at the right times and help prioritize those individuals to then get them back to see the doctor uh, or the care provider at the right time based on their considerations and, and, and what their health issues might be. So I think, again, it's about how do you adapt in real time the language that you use and the information that you can share out to your entire patient community and make sure that that's very clear and concise and informative and correct, which is very hard to do uh, in these changing times, but then also to give options and to say, here's what you can do right now, and here's what you can do down the road as things return to normal. And we'll be in touch with you about that so that you can reschedule and come in and be seen. I know we talked about the new normal, and I've heard that term right a lot. And I get it that things have changed. But in, in many cases, when we come through this, this public health crisis, if it's, you know, a couple months, or if it's a couple years, who knows, right? I mean, I, I, I'm not really sure what the future crystal ball holds in store. But I think that at, at the tail end of this, there's going to be ways that patients and uh, interact with their health system, that's going to be fundamentally changed, it's going to be fundamentally shift. A couple episodes ago, we talked about like, you know, the telemedicine toothpaste is out of the tube, right? Like people are, once that's offered, 
people are going to want to have that in the future too, because of the, all the other positive benefits. Do you think that as we've been talking today about online guidance, is that going to fundamentally change the way health systems are going to look at, you know, even decision support? I, I do think so. Um, I, I certainly believe uh, that that's a very likely outcome of this. You know, to your point about the toothpaste being out of the tube, um, I, I think that applies not just in healthcare. I think probably applies for work from home and all the other things that all of us are doing to to cope with this situation. The way that we um, have you know goods and services delivered to us uh, now, or food, or or you know, staples, right? All, I think all of that is shifting, and and I think you're right that people won't necessarily go back to the way that they were doing things before, both because the, the service value is high, but also because I think people will be worried for some time um, about these kinds of things in a way that they weren't before. We were already seeing increasing adoption of telemedicine prior to this, um, you know, particularly in a primary care setting, somewhat in a specialty care setting in, in certain cases. But I think now that essentially anything non-urgent has shifted to uh, to telemedicine in, in uh, many places, at least, um, at least the harder hit places, and, and may convert more over time as this crisis unfolds, I, I think you're going to see that a lot of people over time start speaking with their physician or their provider over the phone or over a video call and doing consults that way. And you're right, I don't think they're necessarily going to reverse that once this ends. Health systems need to be conscious of that and understand that future growth may not be necessarily about building more brick and mortar establishments. It may be about building your brand as a provider and engaging more directly and in a digital way with your patients. That's very provocative. I appreciate your perspective on that. (laughs) I actually kind of agree with that too. You know, I'll be interested to see how things will actually change. And I really hope that we actually, in in a positive way, embrace these changes. It, it, because ultimately, I think that the promise of digital health is to provide better care and to, again, you know, offload sort of the burden on the health system to, to provide tools to the right people to get to the right provider at the right time. And I think that we all are kind of like, that's the, the noble purpose of what we're, why we're in this business, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I don't think we mentioned this at the beginning, but you, you're actually in New York City, which is sort of the epicenter right now of, of how all things are happening. And, you know, every day my heart goes out to everybody in New York City. I used to live there myself, so I know. But I appreciate you finding some time. I know you're incredibly busy now, but finding some time to, you know, talk about this and talk about the importance of this. If people want to know a little bit more about you and also about your company, what are some great ways for them to reach you online? So from a company standpoint, it's just docasap.com is our website. Uh, you can also follow us on Twitter at docasap uh, or LinkedIn, uh, docasap again. Personally, uh, I'm also on Twitter, Jay Pisarsik, uh, so just my first initial and last name. Um, and then I'm also on LinkedIn, Jordan Pisarsik. I think I'm the only one, so you should be able to find me. I know that your last name is a little bit hard to to spell, but we'll link all of that in the show notes for people that were list- that are people only listening in for them, so they can find you. Um, Jordan, thanks again for your time. Absolutely, Chris. Thanks for having me.
Thanks again to Jordan Pisarsik for coming on the show, for spending a little bit of time with us. Very appreciative of his time and certainly Doc ASAP's uh, support of the network over the last several years. Always appreciate those guys. Uh, be sure to connect with, uh, with him online as well. All right, before we get to recommendations, again, just another quick plug for the virtual. It was always virtual. Virtual before it was cool. Virtual before you had to be virtual conference that is a uh, combination or collaboration, I should say, between the Mayo Clinic social media network and the fine folks over at Shishmet over at the AHA. That is June June 2nd and 3rd. That, and we have a link in the show notes. Even though there is a little bit of a waiting list right now, we encourage you to get on to that waiting list. It's a two-day virtual conference. There's a lot of presentations to read. I'm just going to give you a couple of the titles just so you understand what's here. Showcasing the patient experience through social media content by someone at Advocate Aurora Health. Understanding digital marketing in a privacy-focused world by someone from CrossX. And then leveraging Twitter to help identify physician influencers and drive reputation. So those sound like interesting topics, don't they? All stuff you should know about. So again, link in the show notes, or you can find it over at socialmedia.mayoclinic.org or over on Shishmed's website, I'm sure. So there you go. All right, let's uh, let's do a couple of recommendations. You want to go first? Yeah, I'll go first. Reed, I'm going to recommend a podcast this week. And the podcast just came out. It's called Wind of Change. Do you remember that Scorpion song, Wind of Change? Oh, man. I was singing that in my head the minute you said it. Yeah, that's a great song. That's right. And it was the soundtrack of the 90s, really, um, when the Berlin Wall fell. You know, that was the song that was kind of billed as the the, the wind of change that was going to sweeping over Eastern Europe and even going into Russia. Well, this podcast is by a journalist. Patrick Raiden Keefe, he heard a rumor that the song wasn't written by the Scorpions itself. It was actually written by someone in the CIA. And so this is his seven-part podcast journey to find out the truth of how did the song Wind of Change actually get written. Just released this week when you're hearing this podcast, and it should be really fascinating. It's available wherever you get podcasts, but if you want to listen to all seven episodes, you can go out to Spotify. They're streaming all seven for this week. Good grief. Written by somebody in the CIA. Okay. Listen to it. It should be interesting, huh? Yeah. That's amazing. Okay. All right. Well, there's that. Um Uh, No, that's good. I'm going to have to go listen to that now. I'm doing something that is just completely off base here. I'm not sure that could be more analog. I'm recommending uh, an ant farm. Oh, I like it. An ant farm. (laughs) For those that maybe saw on social media or something like that, most people did not see this, which is totally fine. My birthday was in recent memory here. But anyway, my parents gave me an ant farm. And uh, I had mentioned... I think I was with them, gosh, probably been a year ago. And we were in like, you know, I don't know, one of these stores, World Market or something that has just random stuff. And I'd had one as a kid. I was like, oh, yeah, I might have an ant farm. It's kind of fun to watch. You know, it's kind of like an aquarium uh, with less upkeep. Anyway, so they got me uh, they got me an ant farm for my birthday. But it's not sand. It's not our dirt or whatever it was that they dig the little tunnels in. This is like, it's like a gel. It's like clear bluish gel. And so it lights up. It's probably terrible for the ants. And there's a good chance PETA is probably <laughs> against this. But I don't know. It's a glow-in-the-dark ant habitat. Wow. Uh, I have ordered my ants. 
and uh, just waiting for them to come in and uh, I'll be uh, off to, you know, ant farming, I guess. A whole new career for you, Reed, into ant farming. That's amazing. You have to order ants. You can't just get them from outside and bring them in. I mean, I guess you could. I don't know. They're kind of expensive. I mean, it's like, I don't know, 20 ants or something for like $4. So it's like, however, whatever that works out to. But Maybe I should start harvesting them out of my backyard and <laughs> um, start selling them online. That's a good idea. Maybe you like 25 for $4 and like undercut the market or something. Maybe I'll give a report on a future episode how it's going. Absolutely. I want a picture on Instagram too, please. Yeah, I will. I will. Well, there you go. Um, another episode, 171 in the books. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening. If you would, go out to iTunes or wherever you happen to be listening. Click uh, that rate button. Give us five stars. If not, we lose our jobs. And uh, we certainly appreciate that. Tell a friend, and uh, we'd love to have you back next week. So for Chris Boyer, I'm Reed Smith, and we'll see you next time. This has been a Touchpoint Media production. To learn more about this show and others like it, please visit us online at touchpoint.health.